0: As an under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the primary job assignments that Jesus has given to me, and really every local church pastor for that matter, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. That means I've been commissioned by Jesus, who is the chief shepherd, to furnish and supply Christ's sheep with what they need to do Christ's work, specifically to equip the flock that make up this local church, Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Now, how does Jesus expect me to do this? How does Jesus call the elders as a whole to do this here at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? Well, primarily it's through preaching and teaching teaching sound doctrine that flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ. A sound or healthy biblical teaching that equips and encourages you, strengthens and nourishes you, warns even the precious souls for whom Christ died for. In summary, a pastor's job description Rightly understood is simply this, to equip Christians and to persuade non-Christians who want to be saved, how to know who God is and what it means to follow him in your life. Now, to that end, I spend many hours each week. Sometimes people ask, what does a pastor do every week? You know, I saw Pastor So-So at the golf course for the fourth Tuesday in a row. Is that where my tithe dollars are going? Well, Truth in advertising, I'm awful at golf, so I probably wouldn't be doing that. I spend many hours each week simply opening up my Bible and feasting on Jesus and the scriptures first for my own soul. As a sheep myself, just like you, I must take heed to my own soul and doctrine first before I can take heed to your soul and your doctrine. Uh, members of CCBC, for this reason, I weekly covet your prayers. I weekly covet your prayers. Pray that in my study of scripture, I would never forsake that first love of knowing Jesus for myself. Pray that I would regularly confess my own sin to my wife and to other believers I'm in friendship with. Pray that I would always move towards the light and open up my life for encouragement and accountability to other brothers and sisters in my life. And beloved, you should be praying the same things for your other elders as well. You should be praying this for every man and every woman who leads a Bible study here at CCBC. Pray that everyone who aspires to lead God's people in any capacity to feed and lead Christ's sheep by first feeding and drinking from the Word themselves. But throughout the week, I don't just simply have a long quiet time. I do study and pray in order to equip you, the church, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to prepare you for the weekly, daily, and hourly battle that is waging war against your soul. In order to prepare for answering emails and text messages, counseling meetings, membership classes, members' meetings, intern discussions, staff meetings, elders' meetings, and especially Sunday morning sermons and Sunday evening teachings, God has called me uniquely to open up God's Word in order to strengthen the souls of God's people. So to the best of my ability, and with the grace that He supplies, the bulk of my time every week is given to feeding Christ's sheep, his food. Friends, pray that I would stay faithful. The elders would stay faithful to that task. Uh, one spiritual discipline I do commend to all Christians, something I do for myself, just freebie advice, especially for younger believers who are a little intimidated by the size of this book. Commit to daily reading your Bible. I know that sounds like first grade no-brainer, but I never want to assume you understand to grow as a Christian, you have to be in the book God-inspired. To be out of the book, you open yourself up to all sorts of spiritual danger. So one practice I would commend is read a psalm a day, read a gospel a day, a chapter, not the whole gospel, and read a proverb each day. Uh, The psalms teach us how to pray, And praise the Lord in the roller coaster of life circumstances and human emotions. Uh, The Gospels uh, give us an up-close and personal encounter with Jesus. And the book of Proverbs are full of practical application for the one who fears the Lord. Uh, Within the 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs, uh, there is more than Proverbs 31, by the way. It's certainly fine to quote on Mother's Day, but there's a whole book that leads up to that chapter we can discover many ways in which God has told us how to live in his world the way he intended. It's filled with Hebrew parallelism that reiterates continuous themes and practical instruction and even warnings about sin and foolishness. They are set forth in these Proverbs to help train us for the purpose of godliness. They give us a daily framework for how to live in consistency with the way God has made his world. Because we live in a fallen world, corrupted by sin, and suffering, injustice, and the like, only when we fear God and turn from sin do we begin to see life from God's perspective. Only when we fear God and turn away from From sin? Do we begin to see life from God's perspective? Consider Proverbs 1, verse 7 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or Proverbs 3, verse 7 be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And as you read the Proverbs, You'll also notice another common refrain, the importance of listening to advice. Listening to advice. What is listening to advice? Well, it's it's simply listening to wise counsel, listening even to stern warnings so that you and I are in relationship with God and in our responsibilities in life in the way God intended. Consider this proverb here. I've been thinking about this for about four days, just meditating on it for my own soul. Listen to it carefully. Proverbs 19, verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom when? In the future, this proverb in particular commends the humble disposition of storing up wisdom by listening to it right now, today, so that you and I will be wise in our decision making for the future. One example that we can all resonate with of this importance of wise counsel and wise warnings we often see between a parent. And a child, listen carefully to this following example of a dad imparting sound counsel and loving warnings to his teenage daughter, to the apple of his eye, as he hopes his counsel will lead her to make wise decisions in the future. Here's the letter. Dear child, do not settle. Love a man who loves Christ more than you, and you more than himself. Be attracted to tenderness, lowliness, self-restraint, consistency, and sacrifice. Seek that man who carries the imprint of our Lord's cross upon his life. Love that man who does not live in fear of your emotions, but in the fear of your Lord. Don't marry a boy, no matter how old he may be. Do not fall for the first young man who comes along and shows you attention. Rather, follow that man who comes along and resembles the unconditional grace of your Lord Jesus. I am so sorry about the condition of the average young male today. I regret that they confuse lust with love. I am saddened that they are more proficient at gaming than at balancing a checkbook. I cringe that they knew more of sports trivia than doctrine. I apologize that they know better how to handle a gun, which is completely respectable in one sense, than how to treat a lady. I know godliness in a man is hard to find. But, sweetheart, find it. Otherwise, you will spend your life raising the man you thought you married. The church and this culture are filled with boys masquerading as men. Let them pass. The man you are looking for is no boy. He is a servant. He cares for your needs above his own. If I am at all the man I claim to be, you may look at your father's love for your mother and know what it is I'm describing. You should be able to recognize it when you see it. The man who will lay down his life for yours is the type of man you can easily give yours to. The man who sacrifices himself is easy to serve sacrificially. By God's grace, I have only intended my own love to serve as a high watermark in your soul. None. Except Christ's love for you will rise above mine. This way, when that man, whom I pray for every day, comes along and exceeds your Father's love, you will willingly give him your heart. And I, secretly designed to shoot him and bury his remains in an undisclosed location, will longly pass on my treasure to that man who stormed the fortress of a Father's love with a weapon as meager as a servant's apron. This father, towards his teenage daughter, is just simply doing what every good-willed dad and good-willed mom would say to the daughter they love. And what is that? What are they doing? They're giving sound advice. And that sound advice is also mixed with stern warnings. Warnings That if they're heated, will provide you wisdom in the future. So, what about you? How are you doing at listening to wise advice in your life today? What is the wisest advice you've ever been given? What did that wise advice tell you about that person's love for you who gave such wise advice? even in such a frank and direct way. I imagine many women in this room have received all types of advice about being a mother or a wife, or simply what it means to be a woman in the 21st century. And I would imagine many of us sitting here today are thanking God for the mom we were given, who gave us wise advice years ago. And if you don't have a biological mom who has shown this Christ-like love for you, pray that God would provide you a spiritual mother, who will care for you in the local church. So to all the mothers in the room, happy Mother's Day. Being a mother is a gift from God and it is a gift that comes with years of hard work and much patience. And so sisters, my prayer for you is this, regardless of your age or how old your kids might be, draw your strength from fearing and knowing the Lord. Draw your strength From fearing and knowing the Lord. That means put the Lord first in every area of your life. The greatest thing you can give your children is not casserole recipes. The greatest thing you can give your children are not fancy Christmas gifts. The greatest thing, the legacy you want to imprint on your children and on your grandchildren and on your children's, children's 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 children is that you fear the Lord. Sisters, follow the Lord Jesus with all you got. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I pray that every sister here, whether they're a daughter of a mother or they are a mother themselves, that they would fear the Lord. Now, how do you fear the Lord? How do you turn from evil? We do what we do every week. We look to God's Word together. If you have a copy of God's Word, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at specifically Mark 9, verses 42 to 50. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 493. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, You can take that Bible and that chair as a gift from our church to you, free of charge. We've been learning through the Gospel of Mark that throughout Jesus' ministry, he would instruct his disciples on really what it means to fear the Lord, what it means to forsake living for the passing pleasures of this world, to forsake living for the temporal kingdoms of this world, and instead to live for the King, the King who has come the king of God's everlasting kingdom the rest of your days. In light of our passage this morning, it's good, though, that we review a little bit at a 30,000-foot level. We're going to get up in the plane above the clouds, and we're going to look at some bite-sized summaries. You might say first-century Jewish tweets, if they had Twitter, of what Jesus has taught these disciples up to this point, things that we, too, or called to obey if we're going to follow Jesus. Notice again what we've learned so far about what Jesus taught his disciples. Mark 1, 17, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Mark 3, 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark 4, verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mark 6, 10 and 11, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Mark 6, 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Uh, Don't you remember also when Jesus, uh, the second time, was in the boat with the disciples and they got afraid? What, What did he tell them? What did he instruct them? Mark 6, verse 50, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Mark 8, 15, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Mark 8, 27 and 29, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then Mark 8, 34 to 38, we we really hear the marching orders of really what it means to be a Christian. Mark 8, starting in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then we walked into Mark 9. They went up that mountain, remember the mount of transfiguration where they called a glimpse of the sun's glory? Do you remember the voice they heard piercing through that sky? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Well, did they listen? Well, Mark 9:29 says that when Jesus had turned to his back, their failure to pray in doing the Lord's work, revealed that they lacked faith in the ministry God had called them to do. And then last week, we were in Mark 9, 30 to 41, how Jesus repeated his impending suffering, the ominous death that would soon await him, and then his promise to rise from the dead. And then after he did that, he gave them two lessons that we learned. Lesson number one, to become great in the kingdom of God, you must learn how to be a servant of men. And number two, to see the work of God's kingdom increase, the love of distinction, the love of self must decrease. So this morning, we see Jesus showing his matchless love for his disciples once again. And how is he doing that? He's teaching them, and he's warning them, like a good pastor would like a good mom would, like a good dad would. He is teaching sound doctrine and warning them of ignoring it. Friends, teaching and warning others to heed God's word are both expressions of God's love. Teaching and warning others to obey, to listen, to heed God's word are both expressions of God's love. But this time, friends, Jesus turns their attention and our attention to to a subject that Jesus had no problem talking about in his day. He had no problem teaching this in his ministry. Beloved, it's also a topic that sadly today many pastors and many churches are becoming more silent upon. A subject that they are too embarrassed to talk about. What is that topic? Sin hell, and the call to radical spiritual warfare in order to treasure Jesus with all your life. Sin, hell, and radical spiritual warfare to treasure Jesus with all of your life. In our passage this morning, we see Jesus speaking in hyperbole. So if you read the passage this week, that just simply means exaggerated speech, tended to intensify an important point he's trying to make about serious matters that have eternal consequences. Eternal consequences if we don't listen to Jesus. Uh, Friends, Mark 9, 42 to 50, this is a dense conversation. This was a Sunday morning sermon that had some gravitas and urgency to it. Uh, Quite frankly, I I think this topic and passage probably won't be what most pastors preach about on Hallmark's most economically prosperous Mother's Day. But at CCVC, we're setting a new precedent, aren't we? We are talking about the next verse because Jesus has given us the next text. What does Jesus talk about? Well, he talks about how we as disciples should not treat sin lightly. Look with me in Mark 9, starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have one main idea with some sprinkled application towards the end. Here's our main idea. Do not treat sin lightly, because Jesus loves you, and because sin lies to you. Do not treat sin lightly, because Jesus loves you, and sin lies to you. We must not treat sin lightly, because Jesus loves you and I more than we'll ever realize. And we know he does, because That's why he came to die on the cross in the first place. You recall Romans 8. I'm sorry, Romans 5. Romans 8 is good too. Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us. Who was the us? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we should not treat lightly because sin lies to us. Sin's greatest lie is that this won't hurt. This one time won't matter that much. It's not going to hurt anybody. I can ask God for forgiveness later. Friends, if you've said that this week, you need to repent of that presuming upon God's grace is prideful and dangerous. If you sin with a high hand, as the book of Numbers talks about, and you intentionally presume upon God's grace later, your heart might be too hard to ever repent later. You see, sin deceives us. It tells us half-truths. It fogs up the mirror in our minds about sin's undesirable and irreversible consequences. Well, if that's true, then you might say, well, then what are these undesirable consequences? What are these irreversible consequences? What is the outcome if you and I believe the false promises that sin preaches to us? Well, in our passage this morning, One of the apostles that we don't have in the book of Mark, of course, but he would come later, is the apostle Paul. Jesus would certainly reveal to Paul all that he would ever teach. One of the things that Paul taught really summarizes the gravity of our sin before a holy God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Let's say it together. For the wages of sin is The wages, the payment, what we get in return, what we deserve as a result of our sin against God is death. Now, before we focus on death, we need to understand what sin is. Friends, we live in the 21st century, and we are living, I think, even in the Bible belt, becoming more and more Bible ignorant, ignorant of God, ignorant of sin, ignorant of the gospel, and friends, if, if we allow that ignorance to stay that way, we're going to be just like New England was after the Great Awakening. Our hearts will go so hard that there won't be many Christians here. So let's not fall prey to assuming everyone knows what sin is in this room. Let's define it. Sin is the defiance and distrust of God. Sin is the defiance and distrust of God. It's the distrust. It's the defiance of God's goodness in our life and his sovereign authority over our life. Uh, First off, sin is breaking God's law. Look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 this afternoon. Uh, Read Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, which gets to the heart behind some of the Ten Commandments. And see just how many of God's commands you've broken just this past week. Sin's attitude is always one of being me-centered. Sin is demanding to have things my way on my timing and not God's. Having little to no regard for others. Look at Galatians 5 that Grant read earlier this morning. At the works of the flesh... Look at Jesus' teaching on the defilements of our heart in Mark 7, 21 to 23. Friends, look at those lists and just ask yourself how many showed up in your heart and in your life just this past week. Sin is writing the narrative of my life with me as the hero of the story. Sin is turning God's word on its head, causing us to call good evil and evil good. Sin leads us to be suspicious of God. Sin leads us to hide from spiritual accountability, rebel against good spiritual authority. Sin leads us to self-destruction and endless self-pity. Sin is vindictive, sin is defensive, and sin lives to blame shifting, never taking responsibility for one's own actions. I don't know if you know this, but sin also has its own liturgy in the church. The call to worship begins with how great we are, how powerful and well-respected we are, and how much God needs us. The prayer of praise then begins when we extol how much money we have, how much power we have, how much we do for the kingdom, how much others praise us for what we do in the workplace, in the marketplace, in the church, and in the home. Did you know that sin even shows up in some of the sermons we preach? Sin doesn't preach the gospel of Jesus but the gospel of me, me, myself, and I. God exists for me, my way or the highway, my best life now. Friends, sin, as some of you have been studying in Romans 1, is worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Sin is soaked on every page of the devil's playbook. Sin lets you smell the aroma of pleasure on the bait but sin always hides the hook lying underneath the bait. Sin is the love language of a religious hypocrite. Sin is concerned with merely outward appearances on Facebook and on social media rather than inward godliness in the heart. When it comes to warfare, sin actually makes us think we're working for God's kingdom when actuality we're a pawn in Satan's hand. Friends, sin is falling short of the glory of God. It is missing the mark, Romans 3.23, but sin is way more than that. We didn't just miss it by an inch or two, we blew it. F minus, all of us, failed before the goodness and holiness of God. Friends, if you don't know that you're a sinner, think about how many times this week when you didn't get your way, you got angry. Ask yourself the question, who are you angry at? Well, I was angry at my spouse. You're angry at an image bearer, one who was made in the image of God. If you sin against your neighbor, you're ultimately sinning against the one who made your neighbor. Friends, sin shows up in our lives everywhere we turn. We cannot escape it. Sin is so deceitful too, isn't it? Sin whispers into your ears after this sermon. Following Jesus, it's too constraining. It's too joy-robbing. It's not fun. It's not exciting. Life will be boring. It's not worth obeying Jesus. Friends, we should not treat sin lightly. Listen, because unconfessed sin will torture your conscience. Unconfessed sin will torture your conscience. Friends, it will leave us feeling dirty, unclean and depressed without hope. Eventually, if we don't heed those convictions, we can actually become numb to sin, even sear our conscience. We can even grow so hard towards hearing God that we can't hear him anymore. Sooner or later, if we suppress the truth about God, Suppress the truth that's been bearing witness on our conscience. Suppressing the truth from the sermons we hear, the Bible studies we hear, the warnings from the church. Friends, the only thing left that God can do is hand us over. Hand us over to ourself. The worst place a sinner could ever be is with God's mercy turned back on them. Beloved, what I hope you and I see this morning is that sin is not a small matter to be trifled with. Sin is not a small matter because our God is not small. And the God of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, is not a God to be trifled with either. Think about it for a minute. Put on your thinking caps. Sin got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Sin is what provoked the wrath of God to flood the entire earth and save only eight people. Sin is what sent 10 plagues of judgment on the nation of Egypt and drowned them in the Red Sea. Sin was the cause of the nation of Israel being sent off into exile into Assyria and Babylon. Friends, that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing, not a small thing. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Here's the bad news. We've all sinned. The pastor, the members, Everybody, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. As one author has very well put it, sin is everywhere and sin is in everyone. Sin is everywhere and sin is in everyone. Now go back to that Romans 6.23 again regarding the wages of sin. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What does he mean by Death. Paul is not speaking about the ceasing of existence or annihilation. He's speaking about spiritual condemnation, eternal judgment, being forever separated from eternal life with Christ. Friends, the worst day in our lives, if we are in sin and not reconciled to God, will never be a day we face in this life the worst day we could ever face is standing before the heavenly courtroom of God Almighty. Do you want to know how scary it is? Let's hear it from the mouth of Jesus. Look with me in Mark 9, starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Here, Jesus warns against causing or leading another disciple of Jesus. Did you see what he said? Into sin. Jesus here is warning against misleading, leading astray, or even hindering another disciple in their obedience and relationship to Jesus. That's what this reference to these little ones who believe in me refers to. Now, I don't think Jesus right here is simply saying young people or just minors. He modifies who these are by those who believe. However, I do want to make another point. I don't want to assume that you've been taught, and I want to say the obvious and the true. It is certainly true that anyone who causes a little child to sin abuses them, Takes advantage of them, deceitfully and intentionally confuses them about Jesus, friends, they will face eternal consequences before God. They will face eternal consequences before God. I've been in a church before where a man serving in a public way had done egregious things to his granddaughter and kept it covered up. If he doesn't repent, His day in the heavenly court is coming. Whether it is the unborn child in the womb who has no voice or a young child outside the womb who has a voice but can't defend themselves, Jesus cares about all children. Inside and outside the womb, abortion or abuse are both an abomination to God. But both sins can be completely forgiven by God through the mercy of Jesus But make no mistake about it, the church is to be a prophet to our culture, a prophet to our dark world, that abuse, neglect, or misleading children for their own purposes should never be tolerated or celebrated. Jesus' words here should make us tremble. But specifically, Jesus is referring to, more clearly, younger Christians, whether they're kids or not, who believe in him. This could refer to brand new Christians or even simply Christians at large. If you're going to read more about the dangers of causing another Christian to stumble, read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In the original language, you might be asking, what does it mean to cause another believer to stumble or cause to one of these believers, to sin. Well, in the original language, depending on your translation, uh, it's the word scandalizo. It means to cause someone to stumble. It literally means to put a stumbling block in someone's path, uh, to cause to trip them up or fall along the way. Uh, this is kind of the image of maybe someone putting something out in the middle of the road, you know, playing a little trick on someone that they would fall face flat or even give them the wrong directions to someone's house or destination. We saw this even in last week's sermon when John is so zealous as, hey, Jesus, that guy over there is not following us. We should rebuke him. We should correct him. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. If he's doing my work and in my name, he's with us. He's not against us. We've even seen this with Peter in his own life, right? Peter was rebuked by Jesus for being a stumbling block in Jesus' way. In Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verses 32 and 33, we see that parallel account in Matthew chapter 16. You can write this later, but notice what Jesus says to Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Just means a stumbling block. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of God. Of man. So, what does Jesus say happens if someone intentionally and deceptively causes another believer, particularly one much younger than in the faith, to sin? Notice what he says. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In the ancient world, grain was ground by a cylinder-shaped millstone so large that they could only be turned by a donkey or some other beast of burden. The idea of having such a heavy object hung around one's neck would have been painful and inconceivable enough by itself. But then Jesus adds the horrific depiction of a death, a type of death that would have been shameful for a Jew to ever conceive of, a burial that would not have been like any other respectful burial. It would have been cast into the sea. No proper burial, no one able to come find the body, no one ever to come and remember them year after year, all alone at the depths of the sea. Jesus uses this imagery of this heavy millstone in this bottomless sea, if you will, to bring upon terror into his own disciples' souls. This would mean a complete, all-encompassing, never-escaping, lonely, and overwhelming judgment to come. What Jesus just said about leading others into sin is a really big deal to Jesus. Now look with me at verses 43 to 48. Jesus doesn't stop, does he? Jesus moves on from the egregiousness of causing another believer to sin and the dire consequences thereof to the dire consequences of unrepentant, personal, indulgent of sin. Look at verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Did you hear those words? We've moved on from this metaphorical sea to something far worse. Thrown into hell, unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Earlier we answered the question, what is sin? Now we have another question we need to answer because we don't need to assume everybody knows. What is hell? Hollywood has certainly made light of hell, hasn't it? Lots of jokes have been shared at the old workspace about hell. Emails casually thrown around to say, oh, my boss has made my work a living. Comic strips, crude cartoons have mocked it. Some have even denied the doctrine altogether because it seems barbaric and cruel. Friends, that's why it's so important that we need our minds in our Bibles, our minds in our Bibles, not our feelings, not our religious philosophy class, not in sentimental feelings, but in the Bible. The word translated as hell in our English translation is derived from the Hebrew word Gehenom, which in Greek is translated as Gehenna. The word is used 12 times in the New Testament, and guess what? 11. Of the 12 times Gehenna is used, it comes from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gehenna comes from the reference in the Old Testament to the valley of Hinnom near Jerusalem. It was a notorious site of Israelite history where child sacrifice had taken place during a really bad time in Israel's history, where corpse and ashes were thrown, and where Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, concludes his prophecy in Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, 24, with this image of the fire and the worm. The detestable practice of child sacrifice was later than done away with when revival broke out under King Josiah's leadership, who desecrated the Hinnom Valley by making it a garbage dump. Therefore, Jesus, knowing what went on in Jeremiah's day and in King Josiah's day, the Jews would have known this story. It would have been a catchphrase. To go into hell where the worm does not die and where the fire goes out or never goes out, this was a symbol, this was a depiction of one of the most egregious and horrifying scenes that happened in Israel's history. It was a symbol of divine wrath and punishment, a place of darkness, pain and endless torment. As you look through all the references in the New Testament to hell or Gehenna by Jesus, it almost always refers to a place of punishment. A couple of examples you can find in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Jesus even causes his disciples, don't be afraid of what people can do to your body. Don't be afraid of people who threaten you. Fear him, Matthew 10, 28, who can destroy both body and body and soul in Gehenna. Then when Jesus, the king of love, the good shepherd, faces off with the religious hypocrites of the Pharisees in his like machine gun rapid rebuke of them in Matthew 23, notice what he says to them, Matthew 23, verses 13 to 15. But woe to you, scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell, Gehenna, as yourselves. He concludes his indictment with this in Matthew 23:33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Sometimes, or your kids may ask you this, so parents, if you need to pay attention, is hell a real place? I mean, really? Do people go there forever? I mean, really? Forever? Is hell really a just punishment for sinners? seems unloving to me. I mean, isn't God love? That's not the God of the Bible I know that would send anybody to hell. Let me answer these in a quick-like fashion. Number one, yes, hell is a real place. Right now, as my voice speaks, as you hear the sound of God's word going forth, there are countless billions reserved for the lake of fire that are being tormented in their soul as I speak this morning here in Barling, Arkansas. Right now, read Luke 16. Jesus spoke of hell as a real place. His warnings would make no sense if they had no real outcome. Friends, if the kingdom of God is visible and it will be one day, one, one day universally and visibly seen by those who inherit it, Therefore, the kingdom of darkness and hell will be universally amongst those who are without Christ, seen and felt. To that second question, yes, punishment in hell does last forever. If you read Matthew 25 about the great judgment that Jesus is going to separate the nations, the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, And in the end, Jesus says, Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus makes it clear, the punishment will be eternal and the welcoming into life, the kingdom of God will be eternal. Sin and hell can never be finally punished and atoned for because sinners are never a perfect sacrifice for sin. Therefore, the punishment, And the wrath of God is never appeased in hell. As Erwin Lutzer has said, hell exists because unbelievers are eternally guilty. Every description of the New Testament regarding the eternal punishment of the wicked is met with horrifying and sad images. Darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Being separated forever and ever from the mercy of God. Some sometimes eject, and I think I understand this and sympathize, it seems unjust or unfair to to have people thrown into an eternal punishment. Friends, you have to understand God's character first, and then our sinfulness second. God is holy, 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 and we are sinful, sinful, sinful sinful. Friends, even just a few examples in Scripture, not of nations, but individuals, should tell us how sinful we are. Think of Cain in the Bible, the first child ever born. Did he grow up to be a Sunday school teacher? Would you want him watching your kids? He was the first child born to Adam and Eve who became a murderer. He killed his brother Abel out of pure jealousy and hatred. What about King David? We like some David, don't we? He's strong. He's a man's man. I want to be like David when he grows up. He is the psalmist of Israel. He did get a lot of victories. He was greatly used of God, but make no mistake about it, the same man who was called a man after God's own heart eventually allowed pride, lust, and power to cloud his thinking. What did David do? He eventually committed adultery with another man's wife conspired to bribe her husband and flatter him, and then secretly plotted to have him killed to cover up his sin. What about Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 who would have heard Mark 9 taught to him? He followed around as one of the 12 disciples. He heard Jesus' teaching. He ate with Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He heard Jesus pray. He He saw Jesus perform miracles. Friends, He was right there. And because he had the love of money ruling his heart, he sold Jesus into his betrayers, into those who would eventually have him crucified for 30 pieces of silver. Friends, the Bible has no heroes in it. No one ultimately to look up to. The Bible is replete with darkness and sin and total failure, except one, the one who would be a greater son of David, one that would give his life, not for his sin, but for all of us who have rebelled against this good God by dying on a cross. By dying on a cross, he stood in the path of hell that should have fallen upon you that should fall upon you, that should fall upon me. And it fell upon Jesus. And when Jesus died on that cross, he said, it is finished. What was finished? The wrath of God was appeased for all who had ever turned from their sins and trust in him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, showing he had victory over Gehenna, over our sin, over the devil himself. Friends, the good news is we've only got one hero, and that hero can reconcile us with God. If you don't know him, flee from the wrath of God to come and cling to Jesus Christ by faith. But friends, today you might hear that good news, and you might turn and think, you know what? I've got time. I've made some mistakes in my life, but I'm not that bad. J.C. Ryle once said, hell is truth known too late. Hell is truth known too late. There are no second chances after this life. We die, and then after that comes the judgment. The mercy of God is extended to you. If you have heard the good news about Jesus, you recognize your sin, Come to Christ. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, is the invitation Jesus extends to us. Well, in our passage, Jesus didn't simply talk about the severity of sin. He didn't simply talk about the horrific dangers of hell that many will be cast into. He actually gave us instructions and words of hope of how to escape sin's deception. In our passage, he's going to mention three things, three points. Number one, don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block. Number two, don't feed the beast. Don't feed the beast. And number three, don't forget your witness. Don't forget your witness. Look at number one, don't be a stumbling block. Lead others towards obedience to Jesus, not disobedience to Jesus. Friends, when we're making decisions as Christians, we have to consider the Christians around us in our life. As a pastor, that awareness gets heightened because more eyes are on me. More eyes are on the elders like Tom, Alan, and Jeff. More eyes are on mom and dad. To whom much is given, much is required. If God has raised you up in any form of leadership in your life, eyes are watching you The question we have to ask ourselves is this, is my example, is your example helping others follow Jesus, or is it hindering them? Some good questions you should ask yourself, and I should ask myself every week. Does the Bible allow me to do this? If no, don't do it. Does my conscience allow me to do this? If no, guess what? Don't do it. See, in the realm of Christian freedom, there might be some things that are lawful for you to do, but might not be helpful for you to do. We have to ask questions like, is this decision in my life, what kind of effect is that going to have on the Christians around me? Is it going to cause them to stumble, or is it going to help them follow Jesus? Is my example of teaching and the counsel I'm giving, helping others obey Jesus with their life? Jesus would tell us very sternly, read verse 42 again and again and again and again and again and again. Don't be a stumbling block, especially for younger believers. Number two, don't feed the beast. Don't feed the beast. In other words, starve your sinful cravings. Here on Mother's Day, Julie is going to feast on this massive burger with barbecue and bacon on top, with barbecue sauce and two different types of cheeses. You might say, Blake, it's not Father's Day. It's Mother's Day. Well, she's going to like what I like too. It's just convenient that way. There will be no starving today. Feasting is coming shortly after this sermon for me and Julie. But when it comes to our sinful flesh, we should starve it. Don't feed it. When you know you want something, God forbids, don't give the monster something to chew on. Friends, we devour even the smallest crumb of sin. Stay away from the things you know you're tempted to go into. Friends, how do you resist that temptation? Well, it's not white-knuckling the pew. It's looking to Jesus. Jesus will help you in the temptation and Jesus will give you joy when you have fallen into it and come back to him. The preciousness, the love of Jesus in warning us and telling us to come is what makes sin undesirable anymore. William Gurnall once said, bathe your soul with frequent meditations of Christ's love and it will make you disdain the very offer of sin. Friends, when you love Jesus and your heart's filled with the love of Christ, you know you've been there. You don't want to sin. The freedom of a clear conscience to walk around town, to walk around in front of your family and friends and your church members where your head held high, not in shame. Not because you're proud, but because a clear conscience is a gift from God. Joy, freedom, and a sincere and clean conscience is God's gift to us. May we not grieve the spirit when we dabble with things we know are dangerous for us. Friends, when Jesus says, don't indulge in that sin, he's also saying, my pleasures are better. When Jesus says, don't go to that place where well, you know you'll be tempted, he's also saying, I want to give you freedom and joy. We know he means that because Jesus took on the fury of God's wrath for our sin. Jesus knows the deceitfulness of sin, not because he sinned, but because he was sinless, and he can see sin clearly. you also notice that Jesus, he leaves us with a warning here. John Owen didn't come up with this, though he became famous for it. If you don't kill sin in your life, eventually sin will kill you. Jesus is using exaggerated language here, but we should not in whatsoever, downplay what he's saying. Notice again, if your hand causes you to sin in a particular way, what does he say? Cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin in a particular way, do what? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin in a particular way, what does he say? Tear it out. Friends, the church today does not have enough spiritual amputees in its membership. Jesus implies this. If you want to make it on the narrow way, you're gonna to have to cut some things off in your life. So many Christians today murmur and complain about a besetting sin. And granted, I have compassion for those who are sad and sorrowful, those who are struggling with real burdensome trials. But I have also heard because of the therapeutic emphasis that has crept into the church and killed biblical counseling is that Christians have surrendered to sin instead of making war on their sin. Which one do you think Jesus would say today about your besetting sin? Coddle it? Cozy up to it? I'll never get over it? Friends, he says make war. I like how Elizabeth Elliot once said to a bunch of women who were grumbling and complaining about their sin. She said, sometimes struggling is a nice word for postponed obedience. I cannot wait to give her a hug in heaven. Amen, struggling is often a nice word for postponed obedience. Brothers and sisters, that's why it's so important not merely to attend a local church, but to join one and belong to one. The local church is a partnership. It is a co-participation. It's a coalition where we help one another fight against sin. Read Matthew 18 sometime this afternoon. This is how Jesus has so designed us to live together as Christians. We've all got blind spots. We all have temptations. Jackson might have a temptation that I don't struggle with, and I have temptations he doesn't struggle with. Same with Tom, same with Pam, same with Lindsay. That's why we need each other. Pray for me, brother. I've been struggling with unrighteous anger lately. Pray for me, sister. I've been really greedy and coveting lately. You know, pray for me. I need help. I need you to help me put this sin to death. That's why the local church is here. Friends, that's why church discipline, when it's done in a loving way, is God's way to preserve us against the heinousness of sin. If someone's excommunicated from a church because they've been disciplined out of our membership, it's not to tell them they are going to hell, but it is warning them if they don't repent, they will. It's a siren. It is the local church that Jesus says, sound the siren, because Gehenna is real. And number three, Jesus ends this section by basically saying, don't forget your witness. In other words, pay close attention to Jesus' command to remain Salty. Look at verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In verses 49 to 50, Jesus mixes two spiritual realities side by side. Fire and salt. For the life of a Christian, we will never experience the fires of hell. We are secure in the Father and Son's arms. But in this life, we will go through fiery trials that will purify and remove the dross from our lives. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 4. These fiery trials, these things that come into our life to refine our faith and to keep us salty. Beloved, when we are in the worst of trials, and the flames are getting hot, they will never be as hot as hell would have been. The hardest and most vicious flames we go through in this life are only serving for our eternal good to enter the next. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, that we are the salt of the earth. Salt certainly had a, a tasting benefit, but it also was a preservative benefit. Salt was used with refrigeration, not as common as it is today, to preserve food from getting rotten. As Christians, we are to remain distinct in the world as we make Jesus famous in the world. You might say, well, how do we keep ourselves salty? Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You could basically summarize it this way. If sin is everywhere and sin is in everyone, then the gospel needs to be preached everywhere. And the gospel needs to be preached to everyone. To my non-Christian friend, you will not, by raw willpower, overcome sin in your life. You will not. It doesn't matter how many AA meetings you go to, therapy meetings, or closing your eyes and living on the back of a mountain somewhere. Our sin starts right here. The only one that can fix your sin problem and my sin problem is Jesus Christ. Come to Him and He will make you clean and salty from the inside out. Let's conclude. To my brother and sister in Christ, is your example today helping or hindering others in following Jesus? Are you making war against your sin? Or are you surrendering to it? To my mothers in the room, do you want to make a lasting impression on your children and grandchildren? Then teach them not to treat sin lightly as Jesus taught us. Well-known preacher and Christian author John Piper once said this about his mom's lasting impact on his life. Notice what Mrs. Piper once told young Johnny Piper many years ago. Quote, my mother wrote in my Bible when I was 15 years old. I still have the Bible. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes the densest teachings from your word only demand one response. Fear and trembling. You tell us in your word to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is you who work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Father, I pray that we would spend more time talking about the severity of sin and the dangers of hell and the warfare that we must give ourselves to and cutting things off out of our life that are hindering our love for you. Lord, I pray here at CCBC, we would be a church that moves towards one another, to help fight that good fight together. And we pray, Lord, even even this morning, if we have fallen into sin, succumbed to temptation, and we are beginning to think that you don't love us, or hell is now our indictment, that where our sins are many, in Christ, your mercy is always more. In Jesus' name, amen.